Well, hello, everybody. I'm so happy you're here. It's good to see you if you're watching online here in the room. Hey, I wonder if we could start by taking a moment and just praying for our country. It's Memorial Day weekend, and uh, it's one of those times where we reflect on past wars and people have lost their lives. But I wonder even in a bigger context, we could take just a moment and pray for our world and for our nation. There's two scriptures that come to mind when I think about praying for our world. The first is from 2 Chronicles 7.14, ancient passage of scripture, and it's God speaking. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and I'll heal their land. Just beautiful. Uh, Healing our land. I mean, I think everybody wants that. God, heal us. The other one is from uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.8 in Paul's writing to Timothy. And he says, uh, hey, I want, I want you to do this. So he actually gives him a picture. He says, um, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. Now, for us, we typically don't pray this way. So for some reason, we we're taught you, you fold your hands, you close your hands together, you bow your head. But in the ancient world, Jesus' time, typically they would open their hands as kind of a sign of surrender. He says, so I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without wrath and without doubting, to pray for those in authority, leaders and those in authority over us, so that we can live a peaceful and calm life. Now, what is really interesting about that scripture is that Paul is telling Timothy to pray for his local leaders and the leaders of the world who are Romans, who are occupiers, So he's saying, I want you to pray for people that you don't support, that you don't have any idea how they got to the place they're at. And so I think in a democratic world, that's an interesting prayer that we're called not to just pray for people that we like or we align with, but we're to pray for our leaders. So would you join me in doing exactly that? Father, we come before you. We're grateful for the place we live. Lord, but we also acknowledge that our world is broken and our land is broken. And we look to you. So, Lord, we humble ourselves. We seek your face. We repent. And we ask that you would heal our land. Lord, where there's injustice, where there's brokenness, where there's strife, at a family level, at a national level, at a global level, would you bring healing? And then, Lord, we pray for leaders and those in authority over us. God, we pray that you would grant them wisdom and protection, that they would lead well. Lord, we pray that an environment would be created where people would thrive, where we would be able to follow you wholly. Be with us. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're in the series. We're calling it 33 AD. We're looking back at the very early church, and we've been revisiting a passage from the book of Acts chapter 2 that gives us this look into what the church originally looked like. Luke records it. This brilliant man who's uh, a writer, historian, and a medical doctor. He captures this moment where he says the church was just a new community that the world had never seen before. And uh, last week we kind of focused on this idea and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Uh, We talked about the, the thing that distinguished the early disciples of Jesus was love. Jesus said, this is the hallmark. This is the unique thing about my followers is they love like I loved. We talked about this idea of maybe, maybe calling ourselves disciples of Jesus, if that's who you are or you're investigating, rather than Christian, because Christian's only mentioned three times in the Bible, and it's actually kind of derogatory twice when it's used. Um, but a disciple is someone who follows their rabbi wherever. Now, 
What I'd like to do uh, this week is look at a passage of scripture that Jesus actually taught out of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is going to give his disciples, his followers, uh, a radical new way of viewing the world, of living. It's a new ethic. It's a new worldview. You could call it a lot of different things, but it's a very interesting snapshot where Jesus is going to teach them about a new way of living, which would be countercultural. It would be counter-instinctual. It is an entirely day, different way of operating. And to his listeners, it must have been shocking because here's the setting. So we know this from the questions that people ask Jesus. We know this from other writings that are happening during the time of Jesus. Here's, here's the tension within the culture of the first century Jewish people. They are oppressed by the Romans. The Romans have invaded. They've been in charge for a long time. Rome uh, is frustrated with the Jews because a lot of the world just kind of says, you know, Rome's too big. We can't do anything about it. Let's just live in harmony. Let's pay our taxes. We'll do whatever they say. But the Jewish people just weren't okay with it. And every year, multiple times a year, there were uprisings. There was someone, they'd call him a zealot, who would gather people together and they'd, they'd have a little battle and they'd attack some Roman soldiers and they'd try to start some sort of uprising against Rome. Now, most people were thinking, that's futile. There's no way. We're a tiny little nation. How are we going to overthrow the Roman Empire? But there was such angst in the community. Probably the only way that we could imagine it would be this. Go back before 1776 in our own nation. Okay, none of us were there. But I think we know something of the tension. So the people living in what will be called the United States of America are actually governed by England and the frustration they are experiencing that they're paying taxes to someone, they say, he's not our king. And so there's this boiling within the culture and there's this uh, shots at revolt, there's conversations, there's meetings taking place. How do we get free from this oppression, this deep, deep desire for freedom? That was very likely what's happening in Jesus' day. Now, what was Rome like? Well, Rome was powerful. From North Africa to England, from India all the way to Portugal. I mean, they, they owned the world and they were a powerful people. And one of the things that was very, very real in Roman culture is this little phrase that Mike, might makes right, might makes right. And so Rome's power, they felt like whatever they did, it was for the betterment of the world. And they had a little phrase that they threw around. In Latin, it was the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. Now, <laughs> it's different when we talk about peace. We think, okay, no more fighting. Rome said, we're going to bring the peace of Rome. And how we do that is we defeat your armies and we push you into submission. And now you're at peace. Right, it was a different way of achieving peace. It wasn't like sitting down at a table. It was once we destroy you, now there's peace in the Roman Empire. It was an elimination of any type of resistance. So that's the setting. People are anxious. And when they look at Jesus, they're starting to think, maybe here's the guy that's finally going to liberate us from Rome. He's got supernatural power. He talks about a new kingdom. And in their minds, automatically, they're going to this, we'll go back to the old days when we had someone like King David and we were a political and military powerhouse. 
And so they're, they're, they're anticipating Jesus, he might be the guy who's going to deliver us from Rome. But when Jesus is talking about a kingdom, he says things like, my kingdom is not of this world. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about a kingdom of the heart. So with that in mind, what they're listening to, they're hoping for revolution, literally hoping for revolution. Jesus is going to give them this speech. It's a brand new ethic for his disciples. It's a different way of living. And I wonder how this went over. Matthew chapter 5. This is called the Beatitudes. For some of us, you may be very, very familiar with it. Others, we might not. They call it the Beatitudes. It's a Latin word for blessings. Blessings, because that word is going to be repeated over and over again. And first century disciples actually took him up on this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, big crowds, Jesus is in the Galilee region, Galilee Lake, probably right to the north of it. I visited this just a few weeks back with some friends. There's a sloping hillside, which traditionally is where Jesus did his teaching. So he leaves the crowds. He went up on a mountainside and sat down. And notice who comes. His disciples came to him. So this is a talk to his disciples. This wasn't to the crowds, his disciples, his followers, his mathetes. This is a new way of living for people who say, Jesus is my teacher. He's my rabbi. And he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's this word kingdom. This is poor in spirit. Each one's going to be followed by some sort of gift. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if, the salt, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, Oftentimes we separate these when we read these. We, we take the Beatitudes and then the separate section of salt and light. What we're going to do is we're going to work through this, what does it mean, these Beatitudes. And then we're going to look at the salt and the light as analogies or metaphors. Jesus is saying when you live this way, this is what your position in culture is like. So blessed, that's how he starts, blessed. Now, if, if we were in the first century and we were part of the original audience, okay, so I want you to picture this. You've climbed up this hillside. Lake of Galilee is down to the south of you. You're facing probably the lake. Jesus is below you speaking up. And he says, blessed are, what's the first thing that's going to come into your mind? I think if you're in the first century, you say, blessed are people who are free from Roman oppression. 
And then you probably say, oh, he's going to talk about blessing. Blessed are people who have all the resources in life they'll ever need and no debt, whose businesses are successful, who experience health. They're not dealing with any physical ailments or limitations. Blessed are people whose children are obedient and respectful to their parents. Blessed are, I mean, they fill in the blanks, right? Here's what blessing is. They define blessing in their own way. Now, how about in today's world? If we were just going to survey each other without reading this and say, what does it mean to be blessed? We'd probably have some similar answers, wouldn't we? It's blessed when I'm content and happy, a huge value in our culture. I'm blessed when I'm financially stable. I'm blessed when businesses thrive, when I get advancements at work, when people view me as successful, when I live in a great neighborhood. A lot of what we would probably determine as blessing would be somehow linked to kind of a a, a world where consumerism plays a part in it. Now, we'd also say we're blessed when there's harmony in our homes or we're blessed when we're personally content. All that would be true. In the, in the Roman world, in this first century world, these, these things that Jesus is going to list are utterly foreign to their ideas. In the Roman world, you were blessed if you were born a man and you were born with physical strength or prowess. Women, children, anybody who had any type of physical limitation or disability was considered on the fringes of society, ignored, pushed aside. Children, women, if you weren't a Roman, you had no rights whatsoever. You were simply a commodity to those who were in power. But if you had strength, if you had wit, if you could lead, if you could dominate other human beings, that's, that's what a Roman would have considered blessed because it led to success and ease of life. But the things that Jesus brings up are entirely different. Let's just walk through each of these beatitudes. First of all, he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit. Probably our best definition would be realizing one's need and dependency on God. So Jesus says, people who are blessed are these people. They realize they can't figure it all out. They're not actually independent. They can't achieve the life they want to achieve without God. They realize that without God, they have nothing. They realize there's a poverty inside. That when I look inside, I say this. There's something about my life. There's something about my morality. There's something about my spirituality that I'm bankrupt. I don't have what it takes to please God. See, the opposite would be what? Incredible self-confidence. It'd be arrogance. It'd be, I am God's gift to this world, right? But it's this understanding that there's so much that's broken inside that I am dependent upon God. Next, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Now, our natural reading of this is people who go through difficulties and pains in life and we mourn. And that's part of it. But, but in the context, it's moreover sin at a personal and a corporate level. So at, at a personal level, Jesus says, blessed are you when you realize 
that you've crossed some sort of line, that you violated a relationship, that you've done something that, that has lessened your humanity and you mourn over it. You mourn. And it's not just a feeling of guilt. It's the realization that I violated the sacredness of my relationship with God. And it's not just over my personal mistakes, but over the corporate sins that we carry on. The, the, the things that we do that are normal, that are contrary to how God designed us. So as blessed are people who mourn, he says, they will be comforted. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, are the meek. Now, when we think of meekness, that is typically not a huge value, right? Have you ever been to a job review, your annual review, and one of the scales they grade you on is your meekness? Right. You scored a 10 in meekness. We really appreciate that. In most settings, being overly meek is not smiled upon, right? We need you to be more aggressive. We need you to move forward. This is a humble posture before God, similar to the poor in spirit. But it's this, I think being meek would be waking up every day and saying, God, I'm about ready to embark on another day. And I acknowledge that I am utterly dependent upon you today. And it's not about how sharp I can be or how hard I can work, but it's about me communing with you, depending on you, meek. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When's the last time you're really thirsty? It's like all, when you're really thirsty, it's all you can think about. Or when you're really hungry. Everybody in the room tried to fast lately. There's this kind of spiritual thing that we see throughout the Bible. It's a spiritual discipline called fasting, where you actually forego food for a period of time and you spend that time praying. I personally am terrible at it. I'm trying to get better. But when I fast, all I can think about, I'm supposed to be thinking about God and praying, but all I can think about is food. Anybody else have that problem? I sit down to pray during a meal. I'm like, oh, just thinking about food. No, no, no. Think about God. Well, when you're really hungry, when you're really thirsty, you key in on that, right? That's, I need this. It's a physical need. Well, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a deep longing for justice for the oppressed. So it's when I watch the news, when I'm listening to the radio, whatever it might be, when I'm, I'm, I'm viewing the world around me, and I see injustice, I see brokenness, I see people enslaved, I see people oppressed, I see people confused and lost and lonely. And there's something in me that just like being hungry or thirsty, I think something has to be done. This world is broken and Jesus came to make it right. So blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. That human beings would be treated well. There would be an environment where people could actually thrive. Blessed are the merciful. They will be shown mercy. Being merciful is, is showing generosity in relationships. So somewhere along the line this week, you will be offended by someone. Just will happen, right? Somebody's going to say something. There's going to be an action or a lack of action. And it, it, it'll, it'll bring pain. It'll bring like, ouch, that hurts. Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you show mercy in your relationships with other people. 
When you're offended, when you're hurt, and you're generous with your forgiveness, you're generous with second chances, you're generous with your love, that you're not holding it back and keeping it and holding on to resentment. He says, when you can show mercy, when you're generous in your relationship, you'll actually be shown mercy in return. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart. Jesus is saying this is more than religious, ritual, ceremonial religion. So one of the things that really irked Jesus, if you read the books about his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the thought that being a follower of God meant that you just kept all the rules. So the, the groups that he is constantly having conflict with were known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were the religious clergy of the day. And they were so careful to obey all of the laws that were written before Jesus arrived, making sure that they never violated anything. So their lives were just highly, highly regulated. And Jesus is constantly frustrated with them and saying it's more about than the do's and the don'ts. Jesus keeps pointing back to the internal life. He keeps pointing back to their hearts. He says, you could actually do all the right things but miss the boat entirely. So Jesus is saying you're pure not in your actions because that's how they gauge one another. Like, hmm. All right, you've got the right things on. You washed ceremonially. You ate the right food. That's how they gauged someone's religious success. But Jesus has blessed your people whose hearts are actually pure. It's not all about the outward behavior. It's first what's inside. Because if what's inside, if my thinking and my desires if those are, are, are harmonious with God, then my actions come naturally. Religion is always trying to fix somebody from the outside in. If you quit doing these things, soon you'll change. Jesus said, no, no, no. It's about let's change the inside and then the actions follow. Blessed are the pure in heart. Then blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. So Jesus uses this word shalom. It is one of the most used words throughout this book over and over. Shalom, which is peace. A little bit different than our peace. When we think about peace, we think of an absence of conflict. Right? We've, we've had one of those weekends right now. One of my sons was in the state track meet in Butte. I left at 5.15 in the morning to go watch him. I came back. Our oldest son is graduating from high school later today. It was his birthday yesterday. We had this big party at the house. And it's just been Frantic, frantic, right? Moving, moving, moving. And there was this moment where the lawn was mowed. Everything was set up for the party. We had about 10 minutes. And there's this hammock in my yard. And I just sat down just 10 minutes. And I heard a robin chirping. And it was quiet. It was just peaceful. And for me, peaceful means nothing needs to be done. There's no more conflict. It's just a moment where, whew. well, Shalom doesn't necessarily mean there's an absence of conflict. It means a sense of well-being and security. Trust in God, even in the midst of conflict. So with shalom, you can have peace even if there's a war raging around you. So Jesus says, here's who's blessed. It's people who are peacemakers. They're shalom makers. They bring peace into society. They bring peace into relationships. They bring peace into their workplaces. Those people are the ones who are blessed, shalom makers. And then he says, blessed 
are, and here's, oh boy, this is a great one. Persecuted, falsely accused, and insulted. I don't even think those need any description. <laughs> and listen, guys, you are so blessed when you're treated poorly, persecuted, falsely accused. Now, how do you think this went over to a group of people who are anticipating rebellion against the Roman Empire? Probably just like, Jesus, that is not what we want to hear. We want to hear like, blessed are the people who can organize. Blessed are the people who have prepared themselves for battle against Rome. Jesus says, listen, the way you're thinking is to laugh base. Here's a new ethic for how my people are going to live. And his people began to live that way. Now, remember, the second section is attached to this. So in the same breath, after he says, blessed are you, if you can live this way. He says two things. He says, you are the salt of the world and you are the light of the world. You are salt, you are light. Okay. Now what I'd like to do, I think we'll talk just a moment about light. Why is Jesus attaching these two phrases to the Beatitudes? We're not going to talk a lot about light because I think in our culture we understand light. This one's easier for us to get. Do you know this, this room does not have a single window? Right? Because we have lights. If you turn off the lights, I've been in here when it's dark and I can't find the lights and you're stumbling over things. Light always illuminates, right? Light always brings hope. Light always brings peace. He says, you're going to be the light of the world. What I'd like to do, though, is take some time and talk about salt because this one culturally is much different for us and it's difficult to understand. So you are the salt of the world. Anybody thought, yeah, that's what I want to be, salt. Now, we'll probably have to take a moment and just think through this. What is, what is Jesus saying? So here we have modern day salt. Anybody guess how much this was at the grocery store? Guess? How much? $1.45? Yeah, just about that. Just over, just under $2. Under <laughs> $2. For... Uh, one pound, 10 ounces of salt, 737 grams. Okay, salt is surprisingly one of the cheapest things that you can buy, right? You've got this. We've all got this. We've got it in our cabinets. You've got it. And you're not going to buy a whole lot every year, are you? But how long is this going to last you? You're 737 grams. A long time. And I don't think anybody in the room said, you know what I want to do? I want to be a salt producer, a salt farmer. I don't know what you call them. Because when you look at, okay, I think this cardboard box and this little metal spout, that's got to be at least 40 cents. Where in the world is the profit in salt? It is one of the most economical, cheapest things out there, lasts forever. You're going to have this for a long time. So salt to us, you're like, well, Jesus, why in the world? Like we're the salt of the world, like one of the cheapest things you can find. And doctors tell us we shouldn't have too much of it. So what is it that Jesus is saying? Because what he said would have meant something very different than what it means to us today. You're the salt of the world. So in Jesus' day, salt was a very different thing than it is to us. 
Saul, instead of being one of the most economical things you could purchase at the grocery store, it was one of the most expensive things in the world. Incredibly expensive. In fact, our word salary comes from uh, the Latin word for salt, which is sal, S-A-L. And um, in, in Roman society, especially when gold was scarce, the next best thing to have was salt. And so Roman soldiers were often paid with a bag of salt. That was their monthly payment. So we, we turned that, your, your Saul, your Saul rationing became your salary. And Saul was so precious that Roman soldiers never complained about that. So you'd take your salt rationing and you could actually take it to the market and you could trade for food. You say, hey, I'll give you this much salt for that food. I'll give you this much salt for, for rent. So it was, it was something you bartered with because it was so important in the world. And during the Roman occupation, it became even more so because now they're spread out all over the place. And one of the challenges you have is there was no refrigeration. Okay, so for us, we've all grown up with refrigeration. Imagine life without a refrigeration, especially in the Middle East. It is just hot, food spoils. And so salt, yes, it was for flavoring. But for the most part, it's so expensive that people aren't going to waste it just to sprinkle on their food. It was used as a preservative. That's why it was so important. And it was really hard to find. And so salt, you needed it to get through the winter. You needed it to keep your food. Now, food tasted different, of course. I took a trip down to uh, Kentucky when I was a kid. I drove my, my grandfather back for his 50th class reunion. And I'd never really been to Kentucky, but we'll have family down there. And we're, here we are. We show up like we're on a tobacco farm. I figure out my uncle's uh, raises tobacco. And everybody in Kentucky had a bathtub in their front yard. I know that kind of fits your, your stereotype of Kentucky. But I'm like, why a bathtub in their front yard? So I ask my uncle. He says, oh, oh, it's for the salt pork. I'm like, what is salt pork? And he just can't believe I've never had salt pork. So they just take a ham. They take a big piece of pork and they fill a bathtub in the front yard with salt and water. And they just dump this raw ham in there. And they leave it for two weeks. And they get it out and they love it. It tastes horrible. It tastes like you're eating salt, right? They love salt pork. We eat salt pork on everything. That's what salt was like. It made it possible to keep food around. So it's so expensive, it's used as a salary. Herod, who was uh, king over Israel when Jesus was born, he makes his money off of salt because Israel has this little thing at borders called the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea. It is filled with salt. And he and his leaders figured out how to evaporate the water and purify it and give this salt. So he builds his port city of Caesarea, the largest port city in the world at the time, and he's shipping salt throughout the Roman kingdom. This is how he makes his money. This is how he rebuilds the temple. This is how he makes his palaces. Because salt was such a precious commodity. Now, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the world, one, he's saying, there's tremendous value in who you are. He's not saying you can be. He says you are. There's nothing else to preserve the planet. There's something about salt that it inhibits the growth of bacteria. You're the light of the world. It's going to be dark unless you choose to be the light, the followers of Jesus. It's going to be rancid. It's going to move towards chaos unless you are, my disciples are, 
salt of the earth. So let's think what Jesus is saying. He says, blessed are people who are meek. When you realize your dependency on God, it sprinkles something into this world. A world that celebrates independence, arrogance, self-reliance. When you sprinkle dependency on God into the world, it preserves the world. When you are a peacemaker, this new ethic, this new way that disciples are supposed to live. When you come into situations, neighborhoods where there's controversy, cities where there's controversy, schools, relationships, families that are filled with controversy. Anybody have one of those? And you come in as a shalom maker. You are the salt of the earth. You are preserving, you are keeping from going rancid what would naturally go rancid. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, when you look at the world and you think that's not right, and instead of saying, and somebody should do something about that, who's responsible? You say, that's not right. And as a follower of Jesus, he came to liberate, he came to free, he came to bring justice. So I hunger and thirst for righteousness. You sprinkle preservative, you keep from going rancid, you keep the slide of oppression from happening. So when we read this, Jesus isn't just saying, you are the salt of the earth and you'll make everything taste just a little better, right? What is it about salt? I don't get it. Like, eat it like that, it's terrible. But you put it on food, oh, wow, right? He's not saying, hey, listen, you just, you're going to make everything better. You just bring a little salty Jesusness to the lot world and mm, everything. Mm. He's saying, You have a role to keep light in this world. You have, oh, sorry, a little much. You have a role from keeping that natural deterioration that's going to happen. My disciples are going to change this. So think of of what the early church did. Rome celebrated violence and war and oppression. That's just who they were. That was their ethic. And Jesus' disciples begin to live this out. And about 270 years, they're going to close the Colosseum because everyone's lost their taste for violence. The Christians are going to say, rather than throw criminals into the ring and watch them be torn to pieces by wild animals. We believe that even criminals have value and are made in the image of God. And by the year 313, no one wants to see violence anymore. It's not funny to see human life destroyed. Why? Because the early church was the salt of the earth. They preserved. They kept the world from going more and more rancid. So, two questions. 
do I need to redefine what it means to be blessed? It's been a tough question for me all week. Because when I think about being blessed, I think about the natural things that make life easier in our world. Are the things that Jesus said, this is what it means to be blessed. Do I need to rethink that? The answer is yes. Secondly, how this week can you, can I be the salt of the earth? Not just trying to bring a little bit more flavor, but preserving what God originally intended for this place. And it's through things that you typically don't celebrate. It's through meekness. It's through humility. It's through being a peacemaker. It's through hunger and thirsting for righteousness. So wherever you go this week, okay, tomorrow morning, this afternoon, Wednesday, here's what Jesus says. You, you're the salt of the earth. There's no other salt. There's no other way. It's the followers of Jesus that bring preservative, that bring health, that, that keep evil from sliding forward. You are the salt of the earth. So how can I be a peacemaker at work? How can I be generous in my relationships? Because we all have conflict. How can I show mercy? Because that preserves the world. Will you pray with me? Jesus, sometimes the things that you say are so contrary to what I would typically celebrate or believe or desire. When you sat down with this group of disciples, this group of followers, you didn't talk to them about plans to build power, to build influence, plans to undercut the Roman Empire. You talk to them about a new way of living that was probably against their instincts as much as it's against our instincts. God, would we be people who redefine what it means to be blessed? Lord, would you put within our hearts a value for these things that you spoke of. And Jesus, I don't think any one of us in the room feel qualified to be the light of the world or the salt of the earth. But that's your plan. And when the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, live out this new ethic, the world's preserved. People are protected. A model is shown rather than winning through power, it's winning through dependence on God. Lord, would we be the light of the world and the salt of the earth wherever we go? If you keep your eyes closed for just a moment, I want to make an invitation. If you are here and you're saying, Nate, I desire to be a disciple of Jesus, this is what that means. That means that you hear Jesus calling you. And, and that means he accepts you as you are. He knows all your flaws, all your background, all your potential. And he's saying, follow me. That means you surrender and you follow him wherever he leads. 
and you become the salt of the earth and you become the light of the world. If it's today when you need to surrender your life to Jesus, would you just do this? Would you boldly raise your hand and wave at me? Let me catch your eyes. Say, Nate, I want to surrender to him. Yes, sir. Anybody? Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. Anybody else? Wave at me if that's you. If you're in the balcony, yes, yes, yes. Oh, beautiful. All three, yes. All four of you right there. Thank you so much. It's a new day for you. You're forgiven. You're made new. Okay, good. Amen, amen. Hey, would you open your eyes? Book of Luke says that all the angels in heaven celebrate when someone makes that decision. It's a new day for you. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Hey, uh, as you go, if you raised your hand, grab. I have a little booklet for you. It's out there at the Welcome Center. Help you get started and talk to somebody, okay? This is the beginning of the journey. Everybody else, be the hands and the feet and the words of Jesus. Go be the preservative of this planet. Live out a new ethic. If you need prayer for anything, there's people up front that would love to pray for you. God bless you.